Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet, and each week we bring you visits and conversations with people doing healing work for this world, hearing what they're doing and what inspires them and supports them in doing it. Welcome to Spirit in Action. Ever since I was in my mid-teens, I've been aware of the crisis in the Middle East, in the area of Israel-Palestine. And I've been aware of the threat to world stability radiating out from that point on the globe. Over the past 15 years that I've been doing Spirit in Action, I've talked to people from all sides of the conflict, gathering insights and strategies and understanding. And I think that today's guest has a vital new perspective, potentially opening to a completely new door into a future of peace and justice for the region and for the world. Our guest is Jonathan Kutab. He was born and grew up in West Jerusalem till he headed to college in the U.S. He is a lawyer who has practiced law in the USA, Palestine, and Israel, and has founded and co-founded a wealth of organizations working for peace and justice. Among them, the Palestinian Center for the Study of Nonviolence, the Mandela Institute for Prisoners, the Christ at the Checkpoint Conference, and Nonviolence International. And Nonviolence International is especially important today because they have supported Jonathan in writing and distributing his new book, Beyond the Two-State Solution, that we'll be talking about. Jonathan Kutab has passion, compassion, and vision, and though his law office is in East Jerusalem, today he joins us via Zoom from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jonathan, thank you so very, very much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thank you. And thank you for the release of the book Beyond the Two-State Solution. It's a quick read, and it gets a whole lot of important information and the important vision that you're advancing through it. So thank you for writing that as well. You're welcome. I also have an executive summary at the end Students particularly like that. When they don't read the whole book, they just read the executive summary. <laughs> so you pre-printed the cliff notes for it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Your family moved to the U.S. from Jerusalem in 1967, or right after the 1967 war. So at what age were you then when you moved to the U.S.? Actually, I came when I was 16, uh, one year after the war, uh, to go to college, and the family came about a year later. What did you do? I went to Messiah College, which is a Brethren in Christ, uh, one of the historic peace churches, uh, college, uh, sort of like Mennonites, but not quite. Right. Well, I know both Brethren and Mennonite, and of course, since I'm Quaker, I know a lot of Quakers. <laughs> Were you a peace person before that, or did that influence you in that direction? Well, they certainly influenced me in that direction. Uh, very few people know, but the vast majority of Palestinian Christians of all denominations tend to be pacifist. We read the Bible and we understand Jesus' teaching. So we're supposed to love our enemy. We're supposed to turn the other cheek. And in fact, we're puzzled that the, <laughs> that the majority of Christians worldwide throughout history uh, have sort of found a way to justify war and violence. But for most Palestinian Christians, I would say pacifism is default position. If you're a Christian, you're supposed to love your enemies. You're supposed to turn the other cheek. Well, I mean, how could you possibly not be a pacifist? 
I have exactly that same point of view. But you know what I think it comes from? And this is maybe very relevant to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. When you're in power, it becomes important to take advantage of all methods that you can have to rule the other people, to control things. For people who are subjugated, I think, even though there's certainly appeal of violence, I think that your Christianity can be purer. I think that's true. In fact, historically, it's, it was when uh, Constantine, the emperor, became Christian that he found it necessary to justify war so that he can defend his regime against barbarians. So it, it was necessary that you have an army. Until that time, most Christians thought, you know, if you're a Christian, you're not involved in violence. You're not involved in armies. You're not involved even in policing. That was the, the government. That was not you. And the reason I'm covering this as we head towards your thoughts beyond the two-state solution, I want people to understand who you are and your perspective, because since you are Palestinian, I'm afraid some people are going to assume that you can only see and hear one part of the issue. And from what I've read of you and all that I've experienced, that's not at all the case. Could you explain a little bit about why you're able to hear across the spectrum, even though you're very aware of the injustices that have happened in Palestine? Well, I thought that was necessary. Actually, the minute you realize that there can be no military solution, that neither side can totally eliminate the other, you're forced to deal with the other side. You see, the problem is that there's been this conflict between the Zionist movement and the Palestinian nationalist movement, and each was totally negating the other. I mean, if we say Palestine Arabia, Palestine is Arab. So we, we see the whole question through the settler colonial prism. And who are these foreigners coming to take our land? On the other hand, if you believe in Zionism and you want to create a Jewish state, for whatever reasons, then this is Jewish. And, and so the land, the institutions, the population, everything has to serve Jews. And who are these Arabs? Who are these Palestinians? They don't exist. They're, they're, they're nobody. You either deny them or you demonize them, or you delegitimize them. So these two movements were caught in a zero-sum situation. The more land we have, the less they do. The more immigrants come in, or the more babies are born, the weaker we become. So it's a zero-sum situation where we are fighting over population, and you're fighting over land on behalf of your tribe, your group. And so it just couldn't work. We were at loggerheads. We were mutually exclusive. After 67, people thought, well, maybe we can solve this problem by dividing the land. You get this part and we get this part. And you can be as racist and as exclusivist in your part as you wish to be. That's your part and this is our part. We do it our way and you do it your way. And for many decades, people thought that the solution was divide the land create two states. The problem is that the Israelis were building Jewish settlements all over the 22% of Palestine that was supposed to be an Arab land. So after a while, you scramble it so much that it cannot be unscrambled. There's about 700,000 Jewish settlers living in the area that was occupied in 1967. And I mean living, not temporarily, 
but permanently situated there. Yeah, so, okay, if you cannot divide it, then you must find a way to share it. You cannot continue to negate the other side. Over the years for Spirit in Action, I've interviewed a number of people dealing with this issue, dealing with the conflict and with hopes for peace. One of the things that I've seen carefully documented by one of the Jewish people that I've interviewed is that the intent to take all of the land between the rivers was from the very beginning. So that, in fact, the idea that there was ever going to be a division of the country was a false premise. On the surface, it was said to the public that, yeah, we could do two states, but that the intent underneath, at least by some of the leadership, was always to have just one nation, which is all Jewish. Now, this sounds like taking sides, but again, this was a Jew who was documenting this for me and gave me the historical sources. When you do your introduction, when you talk about the two points of view that have to be reconciled somehow to have a peaceful solution, you're careful not to name what's just, but rather to name the perspectives. And I commend you highly for that, because unless you understand what's going through the other hearts and minds, you can't get to a solution, right? No matter what the facts are, if you can't match their needs internally as they perceive them. Again, I want to ask you, how do you get to be that empathetic towards someone who's essentially drove your family, I think, out of their home? Well, it's, uh, I suppose it's the grace of God, but it's also logic. It's also reason and rationality. I tried very hard in this book. This is not a Palestinian advocacy point of view. I do not have a critique of Zionism. I didn't even emphasize international law or human rights violation. I did not challenge the Zionist narrative. I just say, okay, it is what it is. Can we move forward? Can we not fight over the narrative? Can we just come to the realization that neither side can totally eliminate the other? For many years, I was a strong proponent of two-state solution as a pragmatic solution. But sometimes, as settlements grew and increased, it became no longer viable, no longer possible to talk about two states. And the first time I really explored this idea that was in the book was a few years back on the anniversary of the Belfort Declaration, when I was invited to speak to the American Jewish Historical Association on the 100th anniversary of Belfort Declaration. I was also disinvited the week before, <laughs> but I gave this speech anyway. And basically, I said to Zionist mainline, not leftist, not pacifist, just Zionist mainline Jewish organization, I say, guys, you've done tremendous stuff over the last hundred years. Out of nothing, you've created a mini superpower. You've created a new reality. But you've basically failed because Palestine didn't disappear and the Palestinian people didn't disappear. And today you are ruling over several million Palestinians. There's as many non-Jews as there are Jews in Israel today. So the only way you can rule them is by apartheid, by having one set of law for Jews and another for non-Jews. And I said, you can't do that anymore, not in the 21st century. Apartheid is now a recognized crime under international law. History has moved on. 
you can no longer legitimately create laws that say if you're Jewish, you have one set of rights, and if you're not Jewish, you have another. I mean, I said history changes. Even African-Americans 150 years ago were considered chattel. They were bought and sold. Even 100 years ago in America, women didn't have the vote just 100 years ago. So you cannot imagine the world accepting in perpetuity forever an apartheid regime. It has to change. You have failed to eliminate the Palestinian people. You must come to terms with us. You can no longer say, I want a Jewish state if half the people living under your control are not Jews. I said, by the same token, we Palestinians can no longer say Palestine Arabi because half of the people in Palestine today are not Arabs. They are Jews and they're going nowhere and we're not going to go anywhere. So we have to find a way to live together. And there's another piece about the demographics that you haven't mentioned. Again, you're Christian. You were at one point chair of the Bethlehem Bible College. And so you're Christian, which a lot of people only see Arabs who they think of as Muslim and Jews, the Israelis, right? And the Christians kind of disappear in this picture. So historically, what were the demographics? Were Muslims, Jews, and Christians, how were they divided in the country? And specifically, maybe in Jerusalem? Well, historically, it was about uh, 5 7% Jews, about 15 to 20% Christian, and 75% Muslim. But they all thought of themselves as Arab. <laughs> right. It was, that was their religion. That was their community, that was their ethnic identity. You can almost call it ethnic, even though it's it's religious, but it had connotations of ethnicity. So th- that was historically how it was. Now, a lot of Christians have left. A lot of Jews have come into the country from all over the world. Muslims continue to be more or less, if they're not refugees, they continue to be a majority of Palestinians in the land, overwhelming majority. One of your chapters in Beyond the Two-State Solution, and folks, this is by Jonathan Kutab. He's part of Nonviolence International, amongst other things. And so nonviolenceinternational.net is the website you want to go to, the links on northernspiritradio.org. One of your chapters early on is The Fly in the Ointment. It's settlements. And you've already said some things about that, but I would like you to expound on this a little bit because I think a lot of people still figure that the settlements could be ramped back. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is the three different attempts that did happen to get rid of settlements that had extended into non-Jewish Palestinian territory. Could you talk about those three experiences and what we learned from them? The first is, is, is Gaza. Under Sharon, uh, Sharon realized that the Gaza Strip is a very small, densely populated area near the coast. It's really tiny, about 20 miles long and between three and five miles wide. And it's home today to two million people. And so they had a few Israeli settlements, about 7,000 people living and basically controlling one-third of that area. And Sharon says, this is impossible. We cannot sustain this. So if we can take these 7,000 people out, because we need more than 10,000 soldiers just to protect them, and it just doesn't make sense. It's an unsustainable situation. 
So he decided to move these settlers out of Gaza. And they were furious. They say, how can you? These are our homes. You cannot uproot us. This is part of Eretz Israel. So that the trauma of moving them out of Gaza to this day continues to haunt Israeli politics. Well, you want to remove settlements just like you did with Gaza? You cannot do that. That doesn't bring peace. It creates problems. And you cannot deny us our rights to live in our homeland. After all, this is part of Palestine. This is part of Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. You cannot remove us. Another attempt was to move settlers out of the heart of Hebron. There were 400 settlers living, 100 families living literally in the heart of Hebron, in the central bus station, in a school, and in one building. And they were very, very extremist, really crazy fanatics. Uh, so fanatic, even Rabid said, they're too much. And one of these fanatics went and massacred a number of worshippers in the Ibrahimi Mosque right in the center of town. And so they said, this is a wonderful opportunity to at least move them for their own safety out of the center of this town of 100, 150,000 people. He tried to move them out, but he couldn't politically. And so they, they stayed there. <laughs> they, they actually stayed there. They even expanded their presence right in the heart of town. And there was one other attempt I talk about. Basically, what I said is if removing just a few number of settlers is so difficult, removing 700,000 Jewish settlers to create a Palestinian state in a small part, 22% of Palestine, is becoming impossible. And if that's impossible, then what do you do? If the two-state solution cannot work, what do you do? I had a Canadian friend who used to say, he says, I tell my uh, Israeli friends, look, guys, you won. You won. There's not going to be a Palestinian state. You have made sure that there will never be a Palestinian state by creating so many facts on the ground that they cannot be reversed. So you won. What do you want to do now? Right. So in a two-state solution, settlers are the fly in the ointment. They are the problem. They are what prevents peace. But at some point, when that solution collapses, when it's no longer possible to have a Palestinian state in these areas, then they're no longer the problem. Then you must seek new solutions, which is the whole point of this book, beyond the two-state solution. Once we recognize the reality that you can't have two states in this small, tiny part of the world, then we have to have one state, but it must be a state that addresses the needs of all the people in it, not just one group at the expense of another. And we're going to delve into the details, the important rationale behind this alternative solution, the, a way that forward for the Middle East in just a moment. First, I want to remind you, you are listening to Spirit in Action, and that compelling voice you're listening to is Jonathan Kutab. He is a Palestinian lawyer. When I say Palestinian, maybe that ignores the fact that he was actually educated in uh, and got his degree from Virginia, from law 
school there, lived as of the age of 16 in the U.S., and eventually went back to Israel. He's been co-founder and founder of a number of different organizations. And specifically, I want to recommend that you go to nonviolenceinternational.net because they've got this book, Beyond the Two-State Solution. You can download the PDF for free. So just go to that site, nonviolenceinternational.net. Of course, the link is on northernspiritradio.org, along with links to all of our guests of the last 15 years. So many wonderful world healing workers who are involved in finding a way forward in peace, in love, equality, and justice for the world. And certainly Jonathan is among them. Also on our site, you'll find the stations around the U.S., the 40-plus stations that carry Northern Spirit Radio programs. You can also, of course, just listen by our site or the place where we're podcasts. All over the internet, you can find ways to listen to our programs. There's also a place for you to post comments. And please, and Jonathan, could you echo this with me? You want people to come to the NorthernSpiritRadio.org website and post a comment, rate this program, give your feedback. We need to build community to find a way forward. Communication is the way to do it. I think you've done such a good job, Jonathan, in Beyond the Two-State Solution of hearing people wherever they are. And we'd like you to join that conversation by post a comment on northernspiritradio.org. There's also a donate button, how this full-time work is supported. And please support your local community radio station. Alternative media are so important. I do, of course, want to ask you, Jonathan, about a whole number of the organizations and including the media that you participate in, the way you get the word out. Just a few of the things I want to check off. Uh, you're co-founder of Al-Haq. Does that mean the truth? I don't really it speak. It means the truth. It also means rights. And it's about human rights, legal organization. It was the first in Palestine. You co-founded the Palestinian Center for the Study of Nonviolence, the Mandela Institute for Prisoners. That's a few of the things I've already mentioned that he's he was chair of Bethlehem Bible College and that he's currently on the board of Sabil Ecumenical Theology Center in Jerusalem. And you're a founder, you're a force behind Christ at the Checkpoint Conference as well. So it sounds to me like you should be very tired, and yet your face looks vibrant and energized. And I, maybe that's because because for the moment you're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, your offices for your law firm are in Jerusalem. How often do you get over there? Frequently, at least two or three times a year. And I spend several months there. Since this coronavirus, I've only been there once for a couple of months. And is it easier or hard for you to get there? My understanding is that the Israelis control access to the areas that they want to have control over. Correct. I have a Jerusalem residency. So I am one of the residents in Jerusalem. So my my home is actually in Jerusalem. My wife is here and I uh, travel to the United States frequently. So as far as the Israelis are concerned, I am a Jerusalemite. They'd like for me not to be. (laughs) All Palestinians not to be residents. In fact, they managed to take away the residency of about 15,000 people from East Jerusalem by claiming that they stay out too long, they belong elsewhere, they don't belong in Jerusalem. Because, you see, that is also part of the Zionist imperative. If you're going to create a Jewish state that's of the Jews, for the Jews, by the Jews, 
then you want as many Jews to come in as you can, and you want as many non-Jews <laughs> to be pushed out or kept out as you can. Because, again, this is a fight over demography and a fight over land. What I try to do in this booklet is to try and remove that demographic threat. And I do that by a very uh, strange exercise, shall we say this, that I developed together with a Jewish friend. That is, you know, you ask both sides, what do you really want? What is it that you absolutely need? Why do you want a Jewish state? Why do I want an Arab state? Why do we think that the nation state fulfills our needs? What are our needs? Can we list them? And you list them. I said, now, can we really meet those needs in a state that is not exclusivist, in a state that combines, that addresses the needs of both parties? And if we can, then maybe we can abandon or at least change, radically change our ideologies to accommodate each other. Can I think of a Palestine that is not exclusively Arab, but that's both Arab and Jewish? And can Zionism live with a state that is not exclusively Jewish, but that's Jewish and Arab? Can this state accommodate your needs without denying the needs of the other? And I think we can. This is the whole premise of this book. You know, for a long time, people said, no, you can't. So you divide the land. So you have a Jewish state and an Arab state. But that didn't work for a number of reasons. So now I'm saying, okay, if that doesn't work, can we think of other models that address the needs of both sides? You know, I had one rabbi, a Zionist, centrist, he's not a leftist or anything. And I once asked him, why do you want a Jewish state? Tell me, you can't make it state Jewish. I mean, you can't circumcise a state. What makes a Jewish state? What is it that you want? And he thought and he said, well, I want a state where any Jew, anytime, no questions asked, can go and live and be able to defend himself. And I said, well, maybe I can do you one better. Maybe I can give you a state where any Jew, anytime, no questions asked, can go and live where he doesn't need to defend himself because nobody's out to get him. <laughs> wow, what a plus. <laughs> and he says, oh, and I never thought of that. Because, see, I understand why the Zionist movement says we want the Jewish state, because they thought that you can't trust anybody. We have to be in charge. And I say, okay, maybe you need a place where you can go for refuge from anti-Semitism and from persecution, from hatred. But does it have to be exclusively yours? You don't have to kick everybody else out. You can live with people who accept the fact that this is a special place for you as Jews, but it's also a special place for them as Arabs. That's how the conversation started. And that's what we're talking about in this uh, little booklet. Because actually, historically, there have been some Zionists who say, we need to go live in Palestine, but we don't need to be dominant. We need to be accepted. We need to be allowed. We need to be recognized. But we don't have to eliminate everybody else. And there are other Zionists who says, no, 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 no. We have to be dominant. We have to be in control. We have to rule that land. We're not just seeking a haven. We're seeking a conquest. You know, many immigrants from Syria and other places are going to Europe, but they're not going there as conquerors to take over Europe. 
they're going there seeking refuge because they are in a terrible situation. They want to live. They want to be able to practice their own lives and their own traditions and their own culture in Germany, in Italy, in France, wherever they are. But they don't want to take over France and Germany and make them Muslim and force all the Germans out. This is the difference between seeking a refuge and seeking conquest. And somehow the Zionist movement shifted while they were saying we, we desperately need a place of refuge to saying this place will be ours and we will be the conquerors, the lords and masters. We will be in charge. We will determine everything. And I'm basically saying, can you return to a different model of Zionism that addresses your needs without negating Palestinians? And can we as Palestinians say, we believe in Arab nationalism, but we don't believe in exclusivity. We have to change our ideology to say we need a state which accommodates our needs, but it doesn't have to be exclusive to us. We can also accept other people. You know, Jonathan, you say in the book that you tried to sample and get opinions from across the spectrum, across the spectrum of identities as well. You said you didn't do a scientific study. This isn't like you counted heads nationwide and polling and all of that kind of thing. But one thing I find very interesting is that I have a feeling that sometimes internally for Israel and certainly from the outside, people tend to think of the Jewish people as monolithic, where as they're across a wide spectrum, including Orthodox reform. There's plenty of secular Jews. They're not one single identity. And certainly right and left, there's wonderful peace organizations in Israel as well, people who try and reach across to Palestinians. All of that is there. What's your sense of how that demographics of that play in the country? I think of the U.S. more conservatively now after four years of Donald Trump than I had thought of the U.S. before. I thought we were much more balanced with a big center that was more towards at least live and let live. What's it look like to you in Israel? Well, I'm sorry to say that, if anything, Israeli Jews are becoming more and more right-wing rather than the other. While American Jews, for example, voted against Trump 81 to 19 percent or something like that, in Israel, it was the opposite. Most Israeli Jews favored Trump by an 80 to 20 margin over Biden. In Israel itself, Israeli Jews feel the power and the strength of domination and control. And they haven't had to deal with the reality because the United States always, shall we say, provided them protection from international law and international public opinion and uh, basically democratic ideals, human rights. They didn't have to follow any of these things because the United States made sure they didn't have to. Now, again, you're a lawyer. Your firm is called Kutab, Kori, and Hana Law Firm. And that's right there in East Jerusalem. What are the mechanisms and what effect do they have on this? In part, I'm, I'm, I'm still going towards beyond your two-state solution. I do want to head towards that. I want to know what power do we have at, our, at hand to help move things in that direction? Well, one of the methods, uh, when the governments don't act, people act. Just like what happened in South Africa with the apartheid movement. When the governments of the world were not willing to take action against apartheid, 
students, unions, churches, ordinary organizations, even corporations started putting some pressure through boycotts, through sanctions, uh, through divestment from companies that that were benefiting from the evils of apartheid. They put a lot of pressure. So BDS movement, boycotts, divestments, and sanctions, is a nonviolent way to bring pressure on Israel to comply with international law. But even beyond BDS, we all live on the same planet. Nobody is an island unto themselves. No country, not even the United States, can go it alone, much less Israel. So as the world moves forward, things like apartheid become totally unacceptable. Things like inequality become problematic. Torture, human rights violations, mistreatment of children become unacceptable. So after a while, people or countries or rulers who violate these principles become slowly isolated, even from their own people. I mean, I believe the world is becoming a better place, slowly but surely. I take the longer view, the longer view of history. Today we have more people who are educated, more people who have health care, who have running water, who have electricity, who have internet access, uh, who believe in equality, uh, who believe in human rights, who believe in fighting poverty, who believe in a better world than we did 50 years ago or 100 years ago. So the world is moving clearly in one direction and Israel is moving in the opposite direction. And sometimes I think the United States is also moving in the opposite direction. And, and, and I have to say that the world is changing. And ultimately, you know, it was Martin Luther King who said that the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And sometimes we have to help bend the arc. There's an organization, uh, actually an Israeli organization or a Jewish organization, I'm not sure, which talks about bending the arc, about acting to bring about the changes that are necessary for a better, freer, more just world than we have now. Let's talk, Jonathan, about some of the specifics of your idea. And you're not putting this out as a fait accompli. You're not putting this out there as if there were no discussion intended on it. But you've taken your best vision and put it on paper in Beyond the Two-State Solution. And again, folks, you can download that for free, the PDF of it, from nonviolenceinternational.net. You just look for the book by Jonathan Kutab, and you'll have a whole lot of ideas that will turn your mind from a place of, I think, darkness. A lot of people are pretty hopeless about the Middle East. It's certainly been, I was in high school until 1972, and I remember junior high and high school, uh, the sense that the Middle East was the boiling pot of the world and that unless that thing got solved, we're not going to solve world peace at all. And so it's a supremely important question on an important locus of issues in the world. So let's talk about some of the specifics, Jonathan. At the center of it, you have a vision of a constitutional and legal construction, a country where rights and safety and identity are assured Talk about the apparatus you put together that you that you envision for this country. 
basically, it is just an invitation for a conversation. I'm inviting people to think out loud with me about what should be happening. I'm conceiving of a society that is democratic, that is open, that is liberal, that provides for the basic individual freedom, freedom to move, freedom to travel, freedom to associate, freedom to worship, uh, freedom to live anywhere you want in all of Palestine, uh, freedom to travel and move everywhere else. So, so democracy is essential. But also it recognizes that these two groups have uh, their own specific identity that needs to be respected, that needs to be accommodated. So uh, we have Jews want the right of return, but so do Palestinians. So we can have in the Constitution the right of anybody who wants to come, uh, if he is Jewish or if he's Palestinian, to come and live in this land if they choose. We want uh, respect for uh, religious and cultural practices. So you accept Hebrew and you accept Arabic as uh, languages and you accept fr Friday and Saturday to be national days of rest. And you also recognize for Christians the ability to take half a day off on Sunday to worship if, if they wish, to accommodate the religious practices as well as uh, secular people. So there has to be civil law that provides, right now in Israel, there is no civil law for marriage and divorce and personal status matters. So I want that to be available for people who are not part of the majority or who do not follow any religion to still be able to live their lives. So I want to address those needs and I want to address the needs of security. I have a number of, of, of ways to make Jews feel secure, no matter what the demographics are. So there needs to be a constitutional structure that cannot be altered by 51% of the electorate. These rights have to be safeguarded uh, in the constitution. So I, I talk about also the army. How can the army or the armed forces be a, a force for peace and cooperation rather than oppression by one group of the others? And if the Jews, for any number of reasons, want to continue to dominate at least the top positions in the Air Force, Navy, uh, Army, and nuclear, uh, whatever. So we can say, okay, the top person in these four or five categories, as well as the defense minister, will always be Jewish. But he will always have an Arab deputy. And the top person in the police has to be an Arab with a Jewish deputy. All other uh, positions in the army have to be strictly on the basis of merit. And anybody who doesn't want to fight doesn't have to fight. Not only that, but we recognize that we need to work proactively for justice and for understanding and for cooperation. So 10% of the budget of uh, the defense budget of the new state has to go towards peace and reconciliation and joint projects and understanding of each other. Because that's what provides you with peace and security when the other people no longer hate you and no longer want to kill you. So you don't need more tanks and more missiles. You need at least 10% of your budget to go towards building internal cooperation and understanding and joint projects 
that will prevent enmity from uh, taking root. So I understand the Israeli, the Jewish Israeli need for security, and I try to address it in the structures of the new state without at the same time oppressing others. So you have to find a nice balance between democracy where the majority rules and uh, constitutional provisions that allows every substantial minority to have a stake in the state, which is theirs. Just because they're not 51% doesn't mean that they don't belong. Right. And one of the areas that you address is language. I'm particularly aware of this in Canada because there's this very sizable block. The people in Quebec who speak French, where French is their first language, and we're often treated as second-class citizens, and then English-speaking for many of the other provinces of Canada. And I understand that you actually work and have had some connection there with uh, what's called Just Peace Advocates Mouvement pour la Paix Juste, Canadian-based international law, human rights, not-for-profit. So you have some idea of what it takes to have dual languages. I've been working with someone called Gran Mayer. He's an Israeli who's very concerned about justice and connection across the frontiers. And so one of the things that he has done is to learn to speak Arabic himself, and he's trying to advocate that within Israel, And also that, of course, Arabs should learn to speak Hebrew so that there's no language. So what provision do you have in in your visioning in terms of language? Well, both, that both languages are equally respected and official languages, but also that promoting the teaching and the understanding of both languages and both cultures and both histories become an integral part of the educational system. And there's uh, government programs that promote and that help people to work to understand each other. That, that also addresses historic injustices. So that, you know, you, you talk about Palestinian refugees coming back. Well, what are we going to do with them? If somebody else is living in their house or on their land, so you have to find provisions to provide for them other housing or other land. It's not a fully absolute justice model, but it's a model that works towards justice, that works towards reconciliation, that works towards cooperation, and that tries to remove the basic causes for anger and hostility and, uh, and hatred uh, between the two groups. And like you said, Jonathan, you want to ha- create a country where not only people could be defended, but that they won't need to be defended. <laughs> exactly. Because it's theirs. Exactly. Nobody's out to get you. Right. One of the things that you talk about is a five-person council, kind of the Supreme of the Supreme Court. And particularly, you have to be able to address the fact that change does need to happen. At one point, you, you mentioned, for instance, women finally in the United States in 1920 got the right to vote. So there are big scale just changes that need to happen. Talk about that five-person council. Here's what I think. You know, many Jewish Israelis refuse to accept the one-state solution because they're afraid that once they're a minority, Arabs will treat them the way they've treated us. <laughs> so they're worried. 
about demography. Demography is the demon that they need to stop, that they need to prevent. They always want to be the majority. And I say, you don't need to be the majority to be protected, to thrive, and even to be dominant in, in certain sectors. Uh, I mentioned in uh, South Africa, for example, whites today continue to be dominant in many fields. I talk about Christians, for example, in, in many Arab countries are represented way beyond their numbers. I talk about Palestinians in Latin America. I talk about Jews in America today. They are a minority, but they are quite a powerful group and they are very well represented in some important uh, sectors, uh, in law, in courts, in, uh, in legislatures, in uh, the media, in, in certain industries. Now, even though numerically there are few, they are quite influential and quite important. I don't want to overstate that because you know, some people become anti-Semitic if you talk too much about that. <laughs> uh, so I, I don't want to go there. But I want to say that you don't have to be a numerical majority to be powerful and to be well represented. I also say that we have to stop thinking in these tribal terms because in, in this state that I am envisioning, I think I'd like to think that some Jews will vote for me if I were to run for office. And some Palestinians who are very conservative would probably rather vote to some of, for some of the religious Jewish parties because they are conservative. So you don't have to always assume that people will vote according to their tribe or according to their ethnic uh, group. Uh, there has to be a, a pluralistic society, but you need to, to protect uh, the, the interests of people and, and one of the ways you do it is by requiring super majorities for certain things. And, and you create this board that, that looks into these issues and this court of equality or whatever you call it is like a Supreme Court that people can appeal to and the decisions have to be by a high majority, four out of five, for example. And there will always be two Arabs and two Jews on it. So you would need at least one Jew or one Arab yeah, yeah. to go with a majority to have any kind of change happen. Correct, correct. Because you, you want to have some mechanism for change, but you don't want to make it too easy. You don't want to make every election all of a sudden, we have 51%, we can move in and we can erase what everybody else has done. No, there has to be institutions and the institutions have to have a built-in mechanism for respecting the rights of the minorities and of the individual against the caprice of the majority. One of the sections I really like in Beyond the Two-State Solution is where you look, and again, I think you're doing this empathetically in a way that makes it possible for people to understand that they're concerns are really being listened to. You say, here's the objections that people have, and some of them you give more credence to, and some you deny. What are your favorite ones that you'd like to, high, to lift up that you would like to highlight so that people can understand that you're looking at reality, not just wishful thinking? Well, I talked a little about the demographic uh, demon, about the understanding of uh, democracy not as 51% uh, oppressing the 49%, but a mechanism that applies to, to both sides. Uh, you know, I think that I am not being 
totally naive. I am being idealistic, but I'm not being naive. I recognize that it is not going to be easy. Most people who are in power would love to keep their power. And uh, if somebody is, is, is a slave owner, uh, the minute you talk about equality, you're oppressing him because you're taking away his property, his slave. So I don't pretend that, that I will please everybody. But I do want to listen to everybody and understand what everybody's legitimate needs are. And, and I say at one point, if you want to hold on to your ideology and say, no, 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 only Jews count. Zionism means only Jews. I don't care about Palestinians. They don't exist. They're a made up people, blah, blah, blah. Then this book is not for you. And if you're a Palestinian Arab who says this whole thing is illegal, is false, it's colonial, we need to decolonize, these people have to go back to whatever the country they came from, <laughs> this is an Arab country, then this book is not for you. This book is not for you. You have to be willing to open your eyes and listen to the other side. And if you do, this book provides you a way that you can do it without abandoning your goals and your hopes and your fears and your aspirations yourself. You talked about South Africa as maybe a hopeful harbinger of what could happen, of the change that could happen. You didn't mention much. You mentioned in passing Lebanon. And Lebanon, I think, is maybe still more problematic of a, a scene. Uh, people say, you know, give me a template of where this has worked before. And you, you say in the book, it doesn't exist yet, right? Yeah, I, I talk about that. I say, I say it doesn't exist. And, and, and maybe, maybe, maybe our situation is unique. Maybe we have to come up with a new thing. I don't have to give you a template. And there are some, there are some examples. There are some templates. There are some countries where minorities live together and they thrive. Uh, there are some Western countries. Look at the United States for all its problems. It is still the basic structure is there for a pluralistic society, for a constitution that respects the rights of everybody. Of course, there is racism. Of course, there is discrimination. Of course, there is injustice. But there are also mechanisms for controlling the, the worst parts of it. And there is a constitutional protections for people who are individuals and who are the minorities. So, yes. Lebanon is interesting, Belgium is interesting, Canada is interesting. There are all sorts of, of possible models that one can look at, although I, I, I will insist that our situation is very different. And why not? Why not come up with a new thing? Why not come up with a new thing that other people can emulate, <laughs> that other people can look at? Ah, see, if they're if, 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 you know, not just North, uh, Northern Ireland, but if the Palestinians and the Israelis can do it, surely we can live together. Uh, so, yes, I think we can provide a good uh, example and a good model for others. Look, we live in a broken world. Every system is going to have problems. E even the United States, I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, or, or Washington, or one of the early fathers who said, look, the price of genuine democracy needs to be a vigilant population. We constantly have to work to keep this a democracy. Look, look at what's been happening the last four years. It's horrible. We have to work very hard to maintain or keep 
some aspects of this democracy which is being attacked from all sides. And we need to be vigilant and we need to work. But at least there should be a structure that enables you to work towards justice, to work towards equality, to work against racism and discrimination, to work for human rights. Uh, There has to be an independent judiciary. There has to be a free press. There has to be a vibrant civil society that works on these issues. Uh, And there will be problems and we have to work on them. Yeah, people who think it's easy, it may be simple and pure, but it's not necessarily easy. easy. (laughs) And I, I think you know that more than most. And folks, again, you can read the details of this by downloading the PDF for free from nonviolenceinternational.net, the book by Jonathan Kutab, Beyond the Two-State Solution. Your mind will be opened. You'll find fertile fields to grow in, and and you have to introduce your own plants and your own constructions. This is not a one person's responsibility to envision the world, but he's planting seeds that if you help water them, spread them, I think it guarantees a better world for us because together we can do that. Singly, we can't. Beyond the Two-State Solution by Jonathan Kutab. He, again, is co-founder of Nonviolence International with Mubarak Awad. Go to nonviolenceinternational.net to find more information about that. And there's so much you want to learn about Jonathan. Ever since he came to the U.S. at the age of 16, he has been building the resources and using them. He practices law in the U.S., in Israel, and in Palestine. He's obviously doing things in Canada as well. There's about five different organizations that he has founded, co-founded, or serves on the board of, served as director of. And again, he's much more vibrant than all of that work would lead you to believe. And I'm so thankful that in that busy schedule, Jonathan, you took time to be with us here today for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, my best regards to all your listeners. And again, folks, nonviolenceinternational.net, links on northernspiritradio.org. My appreciation goes to Andrew Jansen for production assistance on today's program. We'll see you all here next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. Check out all things Spirit in Action on northernspiritradio.org. Guests, links, stations, and a place for your feedback, suggestions, and support. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Helpsmeet, and I hope you find deep roots to support you to grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. Oh